How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Well, hello, Internet. Welcome back for another episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name, as always, is Jeremy, and I'm part of the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And today is a very special day. Now, I know you're thinking, Jeremy must be excited because it's the 89th anniversary of Amelia Earhart's wedding to George Putnam. And although that's true, I'm even more excited because today is the day I get to sit down with Adam Waxman, who heads up the core technology division at a company you might have heard of called Foursquare. Adam's career arcs followed a really impressive journey. Um, starting with his time in grad school studying CS at Columbia, he went on to start a startup, work as a software engineer at big name companies, and then eventually he went on to run the, the whole tech show at one of the world's most data-focused companies. He's got some great insights to share about hiring and data science, the deep connection between software engineering and machine learning, and the direction of the whole field. Um, so I'm really excited to just dive into this one. Adam, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Yeah, no problem. You've covered a lot of ground so far, really quite impressive. So you completed a PhD in CS, um, during which you also interned at Facebook. And after that, you founded a company, and I'm skipping ahead a whole bunch here, but eventually you found yourself where you are now, working as the head of the core, core technology division at Foursquare, and you're managing, among other things, many different teams of data scientists, software engineer, engineers, that sort of thing. What I, what I find really interesting here is that you didn't just start off in data science, you were more focused on as you said, software architecture, maybe software engineering, and then transition. So uh, that's definitely going to be an interesting part of the story, I think. But could you maybe start by walking us through your path from academic life all the way to where you are now at Foursquare? So I, I feel like all of my roles have been fairly hybridized thus far in my career. Um, so I, I was at Columbia doing my PhD in computer architecture. Um, and the company that I founded, Epic, was was sort of in parallel with that. So during the last two years of my PhD leading up to my dissertation, um, I was working at Epic, which was a, a small tech company that I had founded with two other guys. Um, and so, I mean, even in my PhD, that was a mix of science and modeling with in the software engineering and systems building. You know, when you do microprocessor design, a lot of that is is building the software systems that can simulate and and model them. Um, so from there, I went at, you know, after that startup company, uh, sort of died, uh, I went along to D Shaw, which is a hedge fund in New York, another environment where it's a lot of software engineering and also, you know, quantitative modeling. Um, for my part, I did mostly systems building and software engineering there. Um, and then since then, I've mostly been involved with two tech companies in New York. One was Etion, which is a, a pharmaceutical tech company um, where they do, you know, a mix of enterprise SaaS along with scientific modeling. And then here at Foursquare, somewhat similar story where we have enterprise SaaS products that are often grounded in, 
machine learned models and, and the data that we're able to acquire. And what was your first contact with data science? When did that happen? It really depends what you call data science. I think data science is one of the largest umbrella terms in yes. the industry right now. Uh, I mean, even back in undergrad, you know, I, I did a math major. I learned, you know, theoretical machine learning all the way back then. Um, one of my science, one of my academic papers in my time at Columbia was on machine learning as it relates to um, understanding malware. Mm. So you could argue that those were data science or you could argue that they weren't. Yeah. Uh, I think it depends how you think about it. Yeah, I, I think this is like layers of an onion that we could be peeling back for hours here, um, just in terms of what the definition of data mm -hmm. science is. I think like one of the, um, the most interesting things I found is, especially talking to people who've had experience founding startups, it sort of gives you a, um, mm -hmm. a flavor for the very practical side of data. Um, I, one thing I was wondering about was like, how did your experience doing that startup inform your, like, kind of your attitude towards data and your perspective on data science? Yeah, so the, so the company that I founded myself, Epic, that was not a data company. That was a pure software company. Uh, that was in the e-commerce space. It was a, a mix of e-commerce and social media. Um, and a lot of my focus there was on systems building. Uh, we built some mobile apps. We, we built a website. Um, so that it, in that sense, that didn't touch too much on data acquisition or anything like that. Um, Did you guys find yourselves doing... data management? Oh, oh sorry. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I guess what I was thinking was more on the kind of um, the user facing side. So mm -hmm. pretty well, all you know, at some point, all startups involve talking to a whole bunch of users, collecting a whole bunch of user preference data and behavior data. Um, I guess that was sort of what I was thinking. But but if you have other other applications, data science there too, that's that could be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say at, at Epic specifically, there was very little there really wasn't data science happening. Um, the, the data science in that vein that I've, I've encountered has been mostly been at, at Etion and at Foursquare. And those are, those are both places that had to deal with the data space in very different ways. You know, so Etion, for example, their main product is SaaS for pharmaceutical research where the data is owned by the client, right? A typical use case for Etion is a pharmaceutical company has a mountain of their own patient data that they own and that they keep private and they need Etion as a research platform to run on top of that and make sense of it. Um, and so there you deal with issues of, you know, how do you do things on premise and how do you manage one type of data versus another and things like that. Um, Forceware is very different where Forceware is much more in the data sharing marketplace of, you know, we have put Forceware Pilgrim out into the world as a development library. And so various apps that use Pilgrim are sending us back data and we're using the combination of that data from many different sources to learn unified models. Um, and you get into all sorts of questions about, you know, learning aggregated things in ways that you can share it out and benefit everybody, but not share PII and not share anything that was private to any one of those companies. Um, and I think that's where a lot of companies are now in the data space where they're acquiring data from a variety of sources, aggregating it, and the value is coming from some sort of aggregation. Mm -hmm where it's sort of everyone has to get into the network and into the marketplace in order to get the benefits. But of course, nobody can share anything that's truly private to themselves. And I guess that's where you get into things like federated learning and all kinds of strategies that are being used to protect that privacy. Um, 
Actually, one thing I do I do want to ask you just to have you lay it out explicitly yeah. for anybody who might not be familiar with Foursquare, although it's a very it's a very popular consumer facing app. Um, can you walk us through? So, what is Foursquare, and then what are some of the the data science challenges that you guys face there? Yeah, so Foursquare um, has a history as a social media company. Built the original Foursquare app, and then Foursquare Swarm, Foursquare City died. There's also uh, a smaller thing called Marsbot. Uh, and we also now, uh, as of last year, have, have the, the placed panel app uh, as a result of an acquisition that happened last year. So there's a variety of social media apps. Um, but the bulk of the business, especially the last few years, uh, is a data business. And one of the things that has unlocked a lot of that is something called Foursquare Pilgrim, which is a developer-facing library for mobile development that took a lot of the location intelligence out of the Foursquare apps and made it commercially available. Um, so, you know, as an example of this, uh, the TripAdvisor app runs uh, Foursquare Pilgrim within the mobile app. Hmm. And so the, the main product of Foursquare today are acquiring data from various partners and then using it to do the kind of analytics and insights that they need. Um, and broadly, the two, the two big directions there are ad tech and developer facing. Hmm. So on the developer facing side, Pilgrim itself generates value for a lot of apps. Uh, and the other big developer-facing side of the business is uh, our Places API, which is a sort of mapping and point of interest product that is disposed to developers at other companies that, that either use it as an API or they can even acquire certain types of, of uh, data sets for their own internal use. On the ad tech side, uh, we do a lot in the advertising attribution space where the data about where people go can allow advertisers to understand attribution in a much more direct physical sense. Uh, because for example, they can know that the person they showed actually started going to Starbucks more, right? Mm -hmm. You can see the movement. Um, and then there are related pro products in that, uh, in that ad tech space um, where, we, where we work to sell sort of uh, media targeting segments, uh, and associated aggregated insights, either in terms of analytics or, or uh, you know, visitation data and things like that. And if I recall, so the original Foursquare app, I, I was actually an early user, I think back in uh, 2014. So this was sort of a check-in and restaurant recommendation and event recommendation type of service that was running. Was that sort of the backbone of this later analytics effort that, that now is more kind of enterprise and developer facing? Yeah, so the, the original Foursquare app, you know, it had things like the check-in, which was new, and they go to see where your friends were going and see what tips they had at places and things like that. And that app split in half back around 2014 into Foursquare Swarm, which is around today um, as a sort of social media see where your friends go app, and also like a life logging app. Uh, and then Foursquare City Guide was the other half of that split, which is also still around. And that's more about figuring out places to go in a city. So you can use it for rec uh, restaurant recommendations, also really recommendations about anything, you know, movie theaters, parks, whatever. It, it covers sort of all points of interest. Uh, but so those two uh, still exist. And what those apps brought in was an, a lot of data about where people go um, that allowed us to build things that people didn't have before. So one thing that we were able to build um, is this notion of mapping uh, sensor data on mobile devices to meaningful points of interest. Um, we call that snap to place. Um, it's something that some other companies uh, have tried to do now more recently. Um, and we have a lot of data from people that lets us do that. You know, so for example, if someone's walking around on the third floor of a mall and they pop into the food court and get some McDonald's and they check in and say, hey, 
this phone, which from which you can see a, a nearby Wi-Fi scan and the current barometric pressure and you know my current lat long from GPS and all this, this is actually McDonald's. So when you see something that looks like this, yeah, this is the McDonald's on the third floor in the food court. Um, and that type of very direct from the user labeled data is very interesting from a modeling standpoint. It's very different from what you can do as like a pure mapping company. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, like you could acquire all the building shape data in America and all the address data and street map data in America, but it doesn't let you do that unless you can see user behavior. Yeah. So um, that kind of stuff that we've learned led to a lot of the more analytics type products that we have. Um, and what we do now with Pilgrim is we collect the same type of location data that we were collecting in the apps, but just at a larger scale, mm. right? So TripAdvisor is a very large, widely used app, but we're able to see all those users in the same way. We're able to take all that data, aggregate it into our panel of people, where we can now draw aggregate insights where we don't have to say anything about any specific TripAdvisor user, because we've lumped them in with, you know, users of all these other apps, including our own apps. Yeah. Um, but we can still draw those same kind of insights. And then when a company comes to us and says, hey, I just ran a big advertising campaign nationwide for all the Taco Bells. I want to know how I did, what kind of effect did I have on people going to Taco Bell and to mm -hmm. Taco Bell competitors. We can look at all these people and say, well, this is what they did. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really kind of powerful set of insights. And, um, and it's really cool that the tech is there now today. I think mm -hmm. one of the really interesting things as well that, that you mentioned when just before we started the conversation is I asked you, you know, okay, so Adam, you head up the, the data science team at mm -hmm. Foursquare and you basically said, look, um, I don't know that I would call it just a data science team. We kind of integrate our data scientists and our software engineers. Could you speak a little bit to that? Like what is the, um, what's the nature of that integration between the two, uh, those two camps? Yeah, I mean, so we don't have a data science department. We have an engineering department um, which cuts across a lot of different functions. And, and I tend to think of data science and machine learning as being one of those engineering functions that is growing a lot these days. It's not so different from how Android is growing as a specialty mm -hmm. and cloud management is growing as a specialty and you know JavaScript expertise is growing as a specialty. So um, you know my area within engineering largely covers our developer-facing products. And so that includes the apps, it includes Pilgrim, uh, it includes uh, our API development, includes a lot of infrastructure and platform work, um, and it also includes machine learning data science uh, as one of those areas. Uh, and generally at Foursquare, the way we operate is that data scientists do need to understand software. Uh, most of our data scientists write production code. Um, often our data science is done in the same languages as our production development is done so that you don't have to do translation of models from one language to another or anything like that. Um, I tend to think that, especially at a small company, having that, that type collaboration works a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, getting back to that topic of like, what is data science? A lot of it depends on that. You know, some companies, yeah. when they say we have a data science team, what they mean is we have an analytic support function. Yes. Right. Like we have a team of data scientists over here and they look at data and make charts and make dashboards that help us understand things. Right. Which is an important function at many companies, but it's it's more of a support function and more of a sort of tool for understanding things. It's like a business process. A for, right. Right. It, it's a tool for understanding as opposed to a tool for development. 
at a place like Foursquare, where machine learning models are a big chunk of our product, mm -hmm. data science is a, is a development function. Yeah. Right. So the, the snap to place model that lives within Pilgrim is part of the product development of Pilgrim. The entity resolution model that lives within our point of interest database is part of the product development of our, of our places API. And so we think of data science as being part of the product development team, as opposed to being support function. So I really find that interesting. It plays right into one of my biases, which is I do think I see the field evolving, sort of bifurcating along the lines of you have the sort of uh, the core product function, and then you have that business oriented, oriented as you said, analytics function. Um, the, I mean, it used to be, of course, like back in 2013, 2014, data science was just like enough of a term, a catch-all on its own that you could have just like a bunch of Jupyter notebooks with pandas and scikit-learn running, and you were a data scientist, and you didn't have to get your hands dirty with deployment and that sort of thing. Um, was there a point where where Foursquare was operating under that model, or was this always integrated? It was less integrated in the past. Um, I mean, data science has served different functions at Foursquare. For example, there was a time at Foursquare when there was a separate analytics team hmm. that did purely analytics that was not related to product development, that was not putting things out in the world. It was more for internal understanding, right? Which, right. which is, you know, what some people might call business intelligence or business insights. Um, so that was a function uh, which was later integrated. Um, we had a small, more isolated data science team in the past that did more modeling in a vacuum, mm -hmm. as I think of it. Um, and a lot of companies still operate that way where you'll have your data scientists will build models and then they'll say, here's the model. It does a thing. Please, engineers, go make this reality yeah. now. Like, find, find the way to get this in users' hands, um, which sometimes involves, you know, rebuilding the model in a different language or building lots of plumbing or, or things like that. Um, I have personally found that it's easier when I can have smaller cross-functional teams that can do everything. Mm -hmm. um, and the skill sets of... Of a, of a data scientist are very similar to the skill sets of, you know, like a backend engineer yeah. for the most part, um, especially, you know, as a lot of this stuff is becoming library driven and this stuff is becoming a little bit more standardized and the tooling's getting more mature, you know, uh, a data scientist who knows how to, you know, uh, write effective PySpark jobs and process big data and build models that person is not very far from a software engineer really yeah. in any environment. And so I, I do think those areas are getting closer. I think business intelligence will remain its own thing because sometimes you just need business intelligence and that's yeah. fine. Um, but I think for companies that are using data as their part of their core product development, I think you'll see the continuation of people hybridizing between modelers and, and people who build systems. And so does this have implications on the hiring side? I mean, I imagine this means that you, you're looking for data scientists now with some kind of product instinct or, you know, with some business instinct if you're looking at the analytics side. But, like, it's no longer the case that you care about, for example, um, somebody who's just like a Kaggle grandmaster. And that's, that's enough for me because they're great at modeling, as you said, in a vacuum. Um, have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I think product instinct is very important and will continue to be important at, at companies that are using data science for product development. I think it's not only because the skill set is so useful, it's also because product relevance is something that I think everyone is really realizing or has realized that you need. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 
there's there's always going to be a place for more pure optimizers who are like highly specialized in certain areas of data science and you know take a a solid model and make it a tiny bit better yeah but i think at many companies there is less of the sort of end of the line optimization and much more focus on how do we build a good enough model for a new problem space or how do we identify the right model for this new product problem we're facing, or how do we deliver this model in a way that our users will engage with it? And so it's becoming much more connected. Um, and I, I think I've seen a lot of that at Foursquare where we've had to build a lot of different models. Mm -hmm. And the challenge of going from nothing to a pretty solid minimum viable model for a relevant use case, that's where most of the work is. It's yeah. not as often as you, where you have a very good model for a very rigid use case and you're just optimizing it more and more and more. Yeah. That does exist, you know, especially at very, very large companies. You know, you can certainly imagine that making the ads ranking model at Facebook 0.1% better is an important problem yeah. that someone's working very hard on. And that's great. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly a lot of companies, especially a lot of startups, where that's not where their focus is. Well, and, and I think, I mean, if I had to pick one point where there's the greatest disconnect between what applicants think and, you know, what job applicants think for data science machine learning and the reality in industry, as you said, 90% of the time, it really is this. I mean, I, I get the sense that, you know, there's this focus on, well, I, I can squeeze an, an extra 1% accuracy, 1% performance out of my model. But if in practice, what's going on is like, as you said, if you work at Goldman Sachs and you're, and you're looking like every percentage point means, you know, $30 million in the company's coffers. Okay. Different story. Uh, you're getting paid a hundred grand a year. So the leverage is there for you to invest your time in that extra 1%. But that product instinct is almost what tells you to stop. What tells you like, okay, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. We need to roll this out and get a customer facing product out to, to test. Um, is, is that sort of like the, the, spirit in which you mean that or, or am I, maybe I'm missing something there too? I do to some degree mean that spirit. Um, I think in general, private sector is very different from what you see in machine learning and academia and also in, in you know, a lot of like the boot camps and fellowship type things. Mm -hmm. um, in, in part for the reasons you see this in a lot of domains, which is that a lot of the tooling is mature. Mm. And so a lot of the hard thinking is in determining product fit, determining what are the right features, determining how do you make things connect? How do you decide how to measure things? How do you decide what's good enough? You know, that kind of thinking, which cuts across a lot of different domain areas. Um, you know, I think sometimes you'll get someone very fresh out of school and they're thinking like, oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this uh, logistic regression model and I'm going to redo it with deep learning. And I'm going to solve yeah. everyone's problem. And like that, I'm sure that has happened to someone, but that's not a common case because it's really easy to retrain your model with a bunch of different standard libraries. Yeah. Um, and you know, you know that sort of configuration exploration is always good to do, and and it is useful. But a lot of that's becoming automated at this point. You know, there are platforms where you can give them a feature set and a labeled data set, and say try every textbook model and tell me which one works the best on this data set. You know, and that system become more and more automated as the tooling gets more and more mature. Um, and, and obviously, like, that's not, that doesn't get you all the way there, right? That only gets you 99% of the way there. Yeah. And there are use cases where you need that last 1%, but it gets you a lot of the way there. And so, like in most areas, I think, of, of software development and product development, you spend a lot of time thinking about the product and thinking about what do I actually need to do.
and you know what features might i be missing you know that might that might make this whole thing work better not because it's slightly more optimal but because it's acknowledging a new dimension that we weren't thinking about yeah well actually maybe this ties into cuz another direction i wanted to go into which is this question of hiring and and what you end up looking for nowadays in terms of the skill set the the set of instincts that people have coming in maybe it'll just be product stuff but is there is, is there one or are there a couple of key failure modes that you see consistently from people when they interview they just you know don't have x y or z and that those are just really important things for the roles you're hiring for? I don't know if I have common key failure modes. I, I think, you know, we always look for some of the, the skills you look for in any software engineer, right? We want people who know how to write code. Mm -hmm. We want people who can think algorithmically. Um, and I don't think that is wildly different. You know, like I, you know, if I think back, for example, to when I was interviewing at D Shaw and, you know, D Shaw has an interesting, model where so much of their interview process is theoretical. It's like quantitative problem solving and working through math on the whiteboard and stuff like that. And it, it, that interview can apply to a systems engineer or a data scientist or a financial modeler. And it's not actually that different. Mm -hmm. Obviously there are differences, but I think a lot of the stuff you're looking for in like a, in a solid software engineer is very similar to what you're looking for in a solid data scientist. And we've had uh, multiple cases of software engineers with computer science backgrounds join a machine learning team and become a good machine learning engineer. Right. You know, it, it doesn't take that long to sort of build up some of the knowledge you need to be able to think appropriately about modeling. And a lot of the tooling is there. Um, and we've also seen the reverse. We've had people come out of data science boot camps. <laughs> with you know, math background or other quantitative backgrounds where they've never really worked at a software company before, but then they come in and they can pick up software engineering the same way that software engineer might pick it up. So I don't, I don't you know, you asked, are there like clear failure modes? I, I don't think I've seen clear failure modes. I think a lot of what you're hiring for in technology is very similar, whether you're hiring, hiring a mobile developer or a system designer or, yeah. or a modeler. I mean, this again, I think I, I'm, I'm destined to agree here because it really aligns with my previous biases. But um, I find any time I'm talking to somebody who's trying to break into data science or machine learning, like my first, my first instinct is to tell them, like, you got to build a full stack data science product. You can't just be building endless Jupyter notebooks and hoping that somebody's going to be impressed by them. Um, apart, apart from the fact that everyone seems to have a profile that looks like that nowadays, it just doesn't show the kind of software engineering. Um, know-how, the hacky mentality that it takes sometimes to get through these these barriers. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if, if that's something that, like, when, when you guys look at, um, at candidates, projects, I assume, matter a lot, to, or, or is that something you put less emphasis on? Uh, it really depends on the candidate. Uh, you know, for, a, for, like, a very junior candidate, project experience or interesting things coming out of, of boot camps can be interesting. Obviously, a lot of candidates, they've got relevant industry experience that we can look at. Um, you know, one of the fellowship groups we work with, um, they'll come on site and they'll show off the projects that they've done, you know, in mm -hmm. their time, in their time doing their boot camp, And those can be interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I think it just depends. It depends on, on sort of the level of experience of the person you're talking to, but yeah, you always want to, you always want to see something, something that shows that, that they've done something applied or, or that they've thought about these things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, makes sense. 
And, and then, okay, so I, I have actually one last hiring question, not to keep harping on this topic. I just think in this case, you have a particularly interesting background because you've been at two different companies that have seen what you might call like hyper growth, like really rapid, um, you know, series A, series B, and, and after levels of, of financing, where presumably you've had to go through a flurry of, of fast hiring. Um, are there ways in which your, your hiring practices had to change to adapt to that? Or, um, or is it pretty much business as usual during those phases? I think hiring practices do change. I think a lot of it depends on the brand of your company and what kind of a phase you're in. So, you know, for example, when you're at somewhere like D.E. Shaw, where they grow slowly, they hire slowly, they hire on a long cycle. Hmm. They have a very strong brand. They receive an enormous number of applications to any job posting they put up. You know, in that world, it's very much a selection problem. It's like, I've got a thousand people, who do I pick? And you try to be very deliberate and you try to make the best choice you can. And there you're very worried about false positives, right? You really want yeah. to make sure every single hire turns out well. That's very different from a growth stage company where you're thinking about, well, I need to attract candidates. I can't just post a job listing. I have to go out and attract people. And that has a cost. And for every candidate that comes in, I have to take one of my few people and have them do interviews yeah. and that's a cost. And so you become much more cost conscious and there you have to think, well, I can only spend X hours of time on each new hire. And so there it becomes a different thing where you're trying to hire more at volume. And I think there's more of an understanding that not every hire will work out. Yeah. That you're going to hire at a faster pace with less pre day one investment. Um, and there, I think often a lot of the focus is less on the selection and more about the onboarding process. How are we going to onboard this person? How will we quickly evaluate them? Uh, you know, what will we do in the first 90 days to determine if this person is a good fit and if we've put them in the optimal role and if they're going to be successful here? Um, and so you direct your attention in very different ways. Um, and, I, you know, I, th I think it's a function of all this. It's a function of how much you're growing, but it's also a function of, you know, what level of maturity is your brand at? If you're a, a new startup, you know, like when I was at Etion, which was a, when I joined Etion, it was a very small startup, you know, you would go to places to talk to people. And the first question you always get is, what is Etion? I've never heard of it. Yeah. Right? And so that's a very place to be. Um, so it, it depends on all those variables. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a really interesting kind of question about philosophically, how do you think about false positives and false negatives in that process? Like, you can almost expect a certain amount of turnover in that first three months as you learn that because you're just moving so fast, you're going to break some things. Um, so uh, is there like, is there a, are there a series of tests during that three-month period that you're sort of consciously implementing or is it more generally like we'll see how, how this person deals with the problems we throw at them? I, in those first nine days, we try to make sure there's enough happening to give us a sense of evaluation. So we, we do a lot of performance management in those first nine days, and we always do a 90-day review at the end. Hmm. Uh, we always make sure someone has at least one dedicated mentor um, who's working with them. Um, we try to make sure we put them on challenging projects right away um, so we get that feedback. I mean, there is certainly a, a, a false positive versus false negative trade-off there. You know, when you're at a very large company that, that's trying to be very selective, and then often you are very willing to accept false negatives and accept that I probably turned away a bunch of awesome people, but that's okay. Yeah. You really are worried about false positives. Um, at a small company, it's more of a balance where you really don't want to be turning away good people. Like that's one of the ways you can get hurt as yeah. a startup is to be too selective 
and some of the best people you're going to get, you never get. And so you have to then accept, okay, well, I'm not going to accept my false negatives, so I am going to accept false positives. Um, and I think part of that, part of what helps with that is making sure you are being thoughtful about performance management. You know, like if someone comes in and they've been here 90 days and they're not fitting in, they're not doing well, you need to pretty quickly either find them a different role if, if it is the case that you think you gave them the wrong role, or you need to, you know, kind of manage them out of the company because you can't, you can't have a lingering set of people who are yeah. unhappy and unsuccessful. That, that's not something that works at a startup. Yeah, I I, uh, I just I keep getting that same advice over and over when um, when my company uh, ended up going through YC at one point, the advice we got was from partners was always like the moment you find yourself asking yourself the question, is this person like am I going to have to let this person go? You've you've already made that decision. Like you need to kind of you know go one way or the other and be quick about it. Yeah, I I semi agree with that. I I certainly have seen cases where. A person wasn't working out. We were very forthright with that person, put them on a plan, and they mm. turned it around and became good employees. And so I don't necessarily agree all the way with, well, once you're having that thought, it's a done deal. You got to let them go. But I do think as soon as you're having that thought, you have to recognize that it's a serious problem. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking that whimsically. Yeah. And so as soon as you have that thought, you, you either need to change their role, put them on a plan, do something. Because you have to acknowledge, like, all right, we're in an unstable state. At some point, that's 12 months, we have to stabilize. And sometimes that stabilization is you let them go, but sometimes that stabilization is you actually find a way for them to, to become high-performing. Well, and maybe this plays into it, too, because you mentioned the, the role of mentors in the organization as well, and you're assigning a mentor to each of these new people. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Like, what does that mentorship look like, and, and what's some of the value that the, the mentee gets out of the process? Yeah, so every engineer who joins Foursquare gets assigned a mentor. Uh, it's usually someone with a little more experience, often on the same team. Uh, and that's someone who can help them get used to project management, help them learn the systems, give them general advice, you know, help, you know, help them a number of things. That's not a replacement for a lot of the normal onboarding stuff. You know, obviously code review still happens through the whole team you know, agile processes happen through the whole team. So it's not meant to replace any of that, but you do get pretty direct feedback pretty quickly that way. Mm -hmm. um, and we always try to get both mentor feedback and peer feedback on new people so we can understand, you know, how they're doing, things like that. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's just sort of cool because I've, I've talked to a couple of companies that are doing more and more of this, and it always seems to be a, at least nice UX for the mentees who come in, for those new employees to have that point of contact. So yeah, cool to hear you guys are doing it. Um, okay, well, what, one last thing I, I do want to make sure I get your thoughts on, and I, I always try as much as possible to make room for this in the discussion, um, the future of the fields of data science and machine learning. And we've already kind of touched on the software engineering flavor, the analytics flavor, but I guess one way to pose this question would be if you were, let's say you were a data scientist today or you were on the data engineering, data science, machine learning engineer team at uh, Foursquare, what, where would you be focusing your technical skills development to make sure that you stay as relevant as possible in, let's say, the months and years to come? So to keep my skills relevant, I would try to stay up to date on tooling in the modeling space that is changing and tooling in the platform space that is changing. So I think increasingly data science is becoming attached to big data and to the building of big systems. 
And so, for example, the adoption of something like Spark is so much higher than it was mm. a few years ago. The ability to work with you know, various type of data warehousing tools is so much more prevalent than it was. And I think it's important to stay aware of that kind of tooling. Um, and I think on the modeling side, you know, staying up to speed on the various libraries that come out, you know, whether it's PyTorch or XGBoost or, you know, any of these libraries where they're taking what used to be hard problems and making them fairly standard problems. I think it's just able to stay updated on all that because I think ideally you want to be able to go into a new project or into a new company and see a new kind of data set, maybe running on a platform you haven't used before or running a flavor of model you haven't used before. And you want to be able to jump on that. Um, and, you know, like as sort of an analogy, you know, when I was first starting in software engineering, it was at a time when, uh, you know, memory management was such a relevant thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I was building some big systems in C and it was so important to understand the operating system and understand memory management. And a lot of those skills are so much less relevant today, right? Yeah. It's so much just happening on the JVM or on other memory managed languages. And so much has been abstracted away. And I think in general, like the tooling is always going to mature. And so the specific points of nitty gritty expertise are always going to move as the industry moves and as the technology gets better. I think you always want to stay up on the tooling and you want to make sure that you're always developing the kind of critical analytical skills that cut across. Yeah. You know, like the, the, you know, the skill set to write super memory performance C code is not the same skill set as, you know, building the most, you know, easy to use effective data warehouse, but it's yeah. not that different, you know, on the level of like human analytical thinking, it's not that different. And so that, that's sort of how I tend to think about it. So don't, don't overfit to the tools of the day um, and try to make sure you build up kind of a generalizable skill set. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, like as, as a maybe sort of straw man counterexample, like if, if, you know, if you're in the mindset of like, I am the greatest deep learning expert ever, I am going to find companies that use deep learning and work on their deep learning problems. And that is what I do. I, I tend to think that's a little bit narrow. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the world's best Erlang VM expert. I will only work on problems where it is good to do them on top of the Erlang VM, you know, anything like that. And there aren't, I don't think there are a lot of people actually think that way, but, you know, don't think of your skill set being your expertise in one specific narrow thing right now. Think of your skill set being the analytical skills that let you get good at this thing, and then next year will let you get good at a different thing. Yeah, and I think actually, um, to me, Kaggle comes up a lot in, like every time you, you mention this idea of generalizable skills, um, it's so common to see people who get fixated on Kaggle performance as the measure of all things. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. in fairness, about, I think, five years ago, it would be pretty fair to say that um, if you're a software engineer or you're, you're not in a data science job and you want to get into one, then Kaggle probably points you in the right direction in parameter space to move in if you want to get that role. Um, I think nowadays, though, the kind of the center of mass of the system has shifted such that Kaggle is one of those skills, but it's very easy to get lost in it. And uh, as, as you say, some of the tooling can often be much more important. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think you can kind of come in, especially if you're talking about entry level jobs, you can come in from almost anywhere. Yeah. You know, like 
we've hired people out of neuroscience backgrounds, out of chemistry backgrounds, out of physics backgrounds, you know, economics backgrounds. It, so I, you know, any, if anyone's thinking like, oh, I have to have this kind of degree and then do this kind of project, because that's the way to get an entry level job, you know, so it's, it's certainly not that rigid. Do you find some um, some backgrounds like more conducive to success or others, or is it really just like it's a basically flat distribution? I don't have data on this, but I feel like anecdotally it's a pretty flat distribution. I mean, so I don't know. I don't know if that flatness cuts across everywhere. I mean, I don't. Maybe a poli sci background isn't as useful as a physics background for this stuff. But there are so many quantitative fields at this point. There are so many fields that require analytical thinking. And at this point, there are so many fields that require you to build software. Yeah. You know, I feel like most, if you're getting a PhD in almost any scientific area at this point, you're building software. Yeah, that's some capacity. And so the skill sets are getting overlapped and the tooling moves a lot faster than, than the educational systems do anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even if you're coming from a comp sci background, there's a good chance you're not learning any of the tools you're going to need in your first job anyway. Yeah. So you're coming in with an understanding of algorithms and an understanding of how to be quantitative and analytical and how to build things. But, you know, with, with some exceptions, there aren't that many schools that are teaching modern software development or modern data science to undergraduate students. Yeah, I guess the four-year uh, the four-year cycle is just too long to keep up with like the bleeding edge of the, these uh, fields too. Well, there's the four-year cycle is the fact that curriculums might take twenty years to change. Right. Yeah. You know, like when I was at Columbia, uh, one of the things was was the move from C to Java. You know, like do we base our the start of our curriculum around C or around Java? And they ended up moving to Java, but Java had been popular in the industry for fifteen years already. It yeah. wasn't like they were doing this at the kind edge. And that's not to criticize Columbia. I'm sure a lot of, of schools have the same issue of, you know, you, curriculums take a long time to set up and they're largely theoretical in many cases. Um, yeah. And you know, like, I remember one of, the, one of the more interesting, when I was an undergrad, one of the more interesting classes I took was a class in, in uh, .NET project, oh, cool. uh, project work, like how to build a real system in .NET which was sort of an outlier because most of my other classes were in much more theoretical areas. And that was really interesting because it forced you to actually build a real thing on a popular framework. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like another class I might have taken at the same time where I'm writing C code in Emacs. And it's like writing C code in Emacs is not the most applicable skill set anymore with exceptions. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to keep your curriculums that up to date in that sense. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's it's got to come down to self-directed learning, at least in in large part when you're uh, when you're trying to break in. Um, yeah, comes down to self-directed learning, internships, doing your own thing. What you know, and also just accepting that like it's all right to go into an entry-level job where you have never used those tools before, and you're going to learn how to use them, and that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great note to uh, to wrap things up on. Do you have any any social media links you want to plug? Any Twitter or? I'm not actually very active on social media. Maybe, maybe I might send you a couple things, but I'm not as active as many people are on social media. So. Okay. All right. Well, we'll add those links once we get them. And uh, thanks again for making the time. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks,